If you would, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We've come all the way through the first three chapters. We're going to get through chapter 4 today, and then we'll finish up with chapter 5 next week. Then we're going to move on to 2nd and 3rd John. Probably hit those in one Sunday, just both together. We had a pop quiz last Sunday. Y'all remember? I want to ask the same two questions this Sunday. What did chapters 1 and 2 focus on primarily? Do we remember? It's fellowship. Fellowship with Christ. Chapters 1 and 2. What did chapters 3 through 5 focus on? Sonship. Being born of God. Being born again. Last week, John informed us that a true child of God will prove his or her spiritual birth by obeying the word of God. This necessarily comes alongside your being born into the family. He gave five motives for us, uh, for our obedience. In chapter four, he states that those who are born of God prove it by their love. So first by obedience and then by love. John uses the same five motives that he did for obedience for love. And true believers will have love for one another for these reasons. And these are the ones that he gives. It's in a different order than he gave them in chapter 3, but nonetheless the same reasons. One, we have a new nature. Two, Christ died for us. Three, the Spirit witnesses to us. And four, Christ is coming for us. Five, God loves us. And if God loves us, why can we not love our brothers? So these are all reasons why we should be loving as Christians. Verse one, you know what? Let's, let's backtrack a little bit to chapter three, verse 24. Okay, we're gonna read through this um, as it was written as one chunk. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. In chapter four, he writes, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. We know the spirit of God because it lives in us as regenerated Christians. Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But not all spirits are from God. And we can deduct this from the scripture because he's saying, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are from God. So in that, he is presupposing that we know not every spirit is of God. 
So there needs to be a test. Do not believe every spirit. He's literally saying, stop believing every spirit. He knew that they were having trouble in the church with letting whoever came along teach them. And they were too welcoming of anyone coming in professing to give them knowledge. Okay, And we remember the Gnostics were all about knowledge. And that idea is a large part of what's informing John's writing. And we'll see that again in chapter 4. But remember, at this early point in the church's existence, believers were not able to reference the entire New Testament like we can today. Everything was new. Okay, This is a new revelation from God in Jesus Christ. They weren't able to look back on the counsel of our written New Testament as we have it compiled today. Now, I want to make a distinction here. I believe uh, fairly confidently that the writers of the New Testament knew that they were inspired. They knew that they were writing truth from God. And the readers who read those things to start off with recognize them as inspired scriptures. Okay, so I don't want to, to make you think that the New Testament was compiled by uh, some bishops in a council centuries after it was written. I don't take that approach to the New Testament canon, but it is inherently scripture since the time it was written. Um, but these believers did not have the whole scripture to reference. Okay, these letters would have been circulated through the churches. They would have been read aloud to the people that came. But they did not have the whole New Testament. Therefore, they relied on teachers that would come into their congregations and teach them. This is a bit of a tricky situation, even in today's world, when we do have uh, the whole New Testament, because you don't want someone coming in that's going to teach you wrongly. I think we can all agree on that. But back then, it would have been even trickier. Um, John tells them, in verse 2, how they can know if someone comes by the power of the Holy Spirit as opposed to some other spirit. That is, they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is the test. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And the verb tense of this word test communicates that they should continually be testing the spirits. It's not a one-time thing. You must continually have your guard up against false teachers um, and spirits coming at you uh, not from God. And they are out there because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, it's not hard to spot a false teacher when they outright deny the Bible. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny these core tenets that we teach. 
it's much more difficult to identify a false teacher when most of what they say is true. When they sneak in destructive heresies alongside the truth. Peter wrote that these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And the idea is that they will bring in heresies alongside the truth. They will sneak them in. This creates a gospel of Jesus and. Jesus and works. Jesus and sacrifices. Jesus and. And this is not the pure, simple gospel that was delivered to the saints. Jesus is all that you need. There is no and involved. Test every spirit. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. I'll remind you again of the Gnostics. Remember, they were teaching that Jesus came only as a spirit. He didn't possess a physical body on the earth. Ding, 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 ding. John is writing to address that teaching. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. It's very plain and simple here. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. We see this word, confess. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Confess is homologeo. It means to say the same thing, to concede or to acknowledge. We're in one accord. We confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. John echoes this same idea in his second epistle, 2 John 1, 7. He writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. It's very black and white. Verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You are of God, little children and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He says that we have overcome them. This verse is used in a variety of ways. Uh, We see it thrown around quite a bit. But the context is in reference to deceptive teachers. We have overcome them because of the power of him who is in us. The false teachers are of Satan. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's so encouraging to me that I am completely left out of this. 
I have nothing to do with the overcoming. Um, it's just who I am in Christ. You see, I am completely left out of it. And the victory does not depend on who I am in and of myself. It depends wholly on who God is. And the fact that he is residing, he is comfortable dwelling in me. The Spirit teaches us all things. That was also in context uh, to these deceptive teachers, these false teachers. Sometimes I don't feel like an overcomer. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, my eyes are crusted over and can't really see. Everything's blurry. Maybe I stayed up too late the night before. My body aches. You know, I slept weird on my neck. I don't feel like an overcomer. But I thank God that it does not depend on how I feel. This is something that is sure. And it doesn't depend on our circumstances, our feelings, or anything subjective. It only depends on the power of God. I'm still on the winning team, whether I feel like it or not. And I praise him for that. John 12, 31. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And this is great news for everyone who is on God's side. The victory has already been won. And we are sitting on the winning team. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We saw in chapter 3 that the world does not know us because it does not know him. We, as Christians, are distinct from the world. And now we see that in an abstract sense, the world speaks an entirely different language than we do as believers. For this reason, the world does not understand the things of God. Paul writes, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is informing our thoughts, informing the way that we look at Christ. Did Christ come in the flesh? Yes, of course. That is a work of the Spirit in my heart, confessing that truth. He who knows God hears us. We speak the same language, and we can be understood by one another if someone else knows God. Paul also writes, this time in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man doesn't know the things of the Spirit, and he can't know them, because these things, the flesh and the Spirit, are completely separate from one another. There's a different language, so to speak. So think about this. What makes language work? What do you need 
to successfully communicate using language. There's three main components to it. You need a sender, someone sending out a message. You need a receiver, someone receiving that message. And you need a common code, an understanding of the sounds that you're making. If I say, I'm hungry, you know exactly what that means. And I can communicate that idea to you using language. All I'm doing is making a strange set of sounds. But we have a common understanding of what those sounds mean. And therefore, you can understand what I'm saying, the idea that I'm trying to communicate to you. In much the same way, those in the world don't understand things that are spiritually discerned. There's a different language. That common understanding of the sounds is not there. And so the language itself doesn't work. If you've ever been in a foreign country for any length of time and uh, you run into someone who speaks the same language you do, you know how exciting that is. You know, man, you speak English too? Let's talk. Let's talk. I don't care what we talk about. Let's just talk. It's exciting. And it's much the same way when we find other Christians out in the world. You know, if you're working a job and it's stressing you out, you realize that one of your closest coworkers is a Christian. Man, that opens up a whole nother way that you can talk to them. Opens up a whole nother conversation that you can have with them. I love it when I get to just sit down and talk to a, a fellow guy who just loves Jesus. We speak in the same way. You know, we have a common understanding of what each other has been through. You know, we've experienced the same love. And, and that is a bond that should not be overlooked. I can have conversations with that guy that I couldn't have with an unbeliever. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So through these first eight verses, We've seen John talk to us about our new nature. Our new nature with God informs how we love other people and how we love him back. Make no mistake, God loved us first. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But God loved us first. Um, There was nothing in me that attracted his love. No, and we'll continue to talk about that. But verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Again, we have this Greek word ek. Ek means out of, or it denotes the origin or source of something. And it's translated as of. 
Okay, but we don't get the full meaning with just our word of. Beloved, let us love one another, for love has God as its source. And everyone who loves is born out of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. Now, an important distinction should be made. Yes, God is love, but it does not work the other way. Love is not God. You know, too many people make love their God. And God is not love in some ethereal, nebulous sense. Oh, dude, God is love. No, that's not what John is saying. God is love very practically and sacrificially. We can place our finger on the love that God has showed us. It's on the cross. Anytime God wants to prove his love for you, he points to the cross. We talked last week um, about this same idea, and we said God's love is not predicated on our circumstances. God does not point to your circumstances, your fancy car, fancy house, your awesome spouse. He doesn't point to those things to show you that he loves you. He points to the cross. Now, in much the same idea, I can't go outside and look at nature and think, oh, God loves me. Do you see that lion just ripped the head off that gazelle? God loves me. Do you see that snake swallow that little mouse hole? God is so loving. See, there's a fallacy within that idea. We can only observe nature in its fallen state. We cannot observe nature as God created it. Yes, nature demonstrates God's power and even the Godhead. And we're told that in Romans. Nature can demonstrate God's power and his Godhead. It does not demonstrate his love. To see God's love, we look at the cross. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. This is the second reason that we as believers should be showing love. Christ died for us. In verses 9 through 11, that's the main idea. Christ died for us. And that informs our love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Have you ever sat and thought about the cross? Just sat there not listening to anything, not reading anything, just sat and thought about the sacrifice that was made. The love that God extended to humanity in that moment, leading up to that moment. Have you thought about it? Because if you have, I promise you will not see the cross in the same way. Take a moment this week to sit and to think about it. And all of that is simply because of his love. Why did Christ die on the cross? It was love. The Father's love towards us, Christ's love towards us. Both the Father and the Son had the power to stop that torment at any given time. And they chose not to because of love. God's love for us outweighed his desire to save his son from that torment. And this is a kind of love that we can't fully comprehend. Now, I'm convinced that I will spend eternity learning more and more of God's love. You know, I. When I think about this, I think back to a time in my life. Um, Many of you know Chaney, my little brother. And you might even know that he was in an ATV accident a number of years ago. He flipped the four-wheeler and it broke both of his femurs, his wrist, and he got a concussion. So he was taken to the hospital expediently. They unloaded him. They put him in the emergency room. And they had to put his legs in traction, is what it's called. The bones were next to each other. You know, the same bone was beside itself. They had to bring those bones back into alignment so that it could start to heal. And I think he was in shock for the accident. But a lot of that adrenaline had worn off once he got to the hospital and they were getting him in traction. Um, They started cranking on his legs. They hooked him up to this pulley system. They were straightening out the bones. And his screams um, are something that I, I won't forget. And when I think about the cross, that comes to my mind. And I was there. And I was witnessing the pain that my brother was going through. But a brother's not a son. There's a whole different attachment that comes with a child, a son that you've raised. And even more so, I didn't have the power to stop that. The pain that he was going through, I couldn't help. I was just there to watch it, to be with him as he was struggling. 
but I can't imagine having the power to stop it and choosing not to for love. It's beyond me. It is, like John wrote, a foreign kind of love. So how do we know God's love for us? How do we define agape? It's at the cross. The cross defines love for Christians. Oh, maybe we can look to the world for some definition of love. No, you can't. Because they don't understand. They cannot discern this type of love. In the Greek language, there's, I believe there's eight different words for love. You got agape, eros, phileo. There's, there's eight of them. In English, we only say love. You know, they can get much more specific with the type of love that they're talking about. Now, we would have far fewer sad teenage girls if when their boyfriend came along, he said, oh, baby, I eros you. I love you with a fleshly love, a fleshly desire. And that would make things clear. We would understand then what he was trying to tell her. You know, and that, that would be beneficial to us. In this, the agape of God was manifested towards us. He's being very clear about this type of love. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I was rotting in my sin when God reached down, sent his son, and brought me back to him. There was nothing in me. I promise there was nothing that warranted God's affection towards me. It had everything to do with him reaching out. If God loves us in such a manner, then we should also extend that love to one another. And how many issues around the world would simply be solved if everyone loved each other with a Christ-like love? We wouldn't hardly have any issues at all. Love sums up the whole law and the prophets. Everything is consummated in love. It brings everything together. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Here in verse 12 starts this speaking of our third motivation for love. That is the spirit who witnesses to us. No one has seen God at any time. Now, Jesus affirmed his unity with the Father in John 14, 9, when he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 
that's talking about something different than what John is talking about here. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you see Jesus, you see God. He was God in flesh. But John here is talking about seeing God in all of his glory. No one has seen the Father in his holiness. But if we love one another, then the people around us will see the love of God. What was the mark that Jesus ascribed to his disciples? How could someone tell if someone is a disciple of Christ? By the love that you have one for another. The mark of a disciple is love. The world should be able to see Christ through Christians. In the early days of Christianity, people didn't know what to call these followers of Christ. Finally, they were called Christians. It literally means little Christs. These early Christians looked so much like Christ, they were dubbed little Christs. I think that's cool. And I wish that they didn't have a name for us now, that they would look at us and say, man, those are just a bunch of little Christ running around because we exemplify what he stands for. They acted so much like Christ himself. They were called little Christs. And I have no doubt that love was the chief characteristic that they displayed. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Romans 5.5 tells us that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. God has given us his spirit as a parakletos, a helper or a comforter. And we know that if we are of him, his spirit abides in us. It dwells. And the insinuation with that word dwell is that you find a place comfortable. I dwell in my house. I'm comfortable there. If the Holy Spirit finds it comfortable to abide in me, something amazing and drastic has happened. Because in my state before I was saved, he would not have found it comfortable to dwell in me. God, being immaculately holy, cannot fellowship with sin and darkness. Before I was saved, that's what I was. I was sin and I was darkness. But something drastic happens when we are regenerated, when we are born into the family of God. We're wiped clean. There is no more sin, no more darkness there. And the Holy Spirit finds it comfortable to dwell in us. You see, God only looks at you and sees one of two things. He either looks at you and he sees a spotted thing of creation, dark with sin, or he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his son. 
And those are the only two options. There is no in-between. I was talking with a friend a couple years ago, and we got to talking about gray area. He was saying, like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't really get into any trouble. He's like, is that, like, okay? Like, is that good? I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell you whether you're saved or you're not saved. But I want you to look at First John. Because John lays it out very clearly for us. You're either saved or you're not. You are a son of God or you're not. And there's no gray area to be wiggled into here. You're either with Jesus or you're not. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God either sees you as completely covered by the blood or completely dark in your sin, and there's no in-between. And if the Spirit lives in you, you should be demonstrating the love of God by the way that you live. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. Again, he affirms that God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. We have known that know is gnosko, we have experientially known and believed that the love that God has for us. Verse 17. Verse 17 through 18 will tell us of this fourth motivation. Christ is coming for us, and this should motivate us to love. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So Christ is coming back for us. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. As children of God, We have freedom of speech when it comes to the judgment day. We can stand before him justified, just as if our sin had never happened, because we're covered by the blood. We can humbly come before our Father without fear. Why are we able to do this? Because just as he is, so are we. In the world. In what state is Jesus? Righteous. Jesus is righteous, and the Father sees his righteousness on us because the blood of Christ covers our transgressions. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
That's what he's saying here in verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, that is righteous, so are we in this world. If we are in Jesus, we are righteous to the Father. Our transgressions are removed from us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In this kind of love, this agape love, there is no place for fear. Phobos is the Greek word that's used to speak of a tormentive kind of fear. There is no torment in love, but there is a healthy fear of God. And there's a different word used for a healthy reverence or a Godward fear. Eulabia is this word for godly reverence, respect. And sometimes we say, oh, he's a God-fearing man. That fear comes from this word. In Hebrews 5.7, we see that Jesus feared God in this way, in a healthy way, Eulabia. And was heard because of his godly fear. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Back to our text in 1 John. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now we're talking about Phobos again. A tormented fear. If you see God as a tormentor, the love of God has not had its completed work in you yet. God is not an angry cop waiting to catch you running a red light or waiting in a speed trap for you. He's not out to get you. He loves us. And that love, in that love, is not torment. We love him because he first loved us. This brings us to our last motivation for our love as Christians. Simply, God loves us. And we love him because he first loved us. Why would we bottle up the love that he showed us towards other people? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of the cross when he laid down his life. We were completely opposed to him but he offered himself to receive our punishment. Not that we did anything to deserve this love, but he is love. It's simply who he is. And you cannot separate God from his love. It is simply who he is. And he pours it to us. He pours it out freely to us in this magnificent display. Further, he loves every one of us with the same love he has for his son. This is remarkable. This is truly remarkable. And John 17, 23 records Jesus's words. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Those are some of the most remarkable words in the entire Bible. God has loved us with the same love that he extends to his son. And God's love casts out the fear of torment. 
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Sure, we can talk about false teachers. We can talk about testing the spirits. And that's all good stuff. And it's helpful to us. But we cannot forget to test ourselves. Read 1 John every morning this week. Just go through it. It's five chapters. Should be able to get through it in 30, 45 minutes. Maybe an hour if you read like me. Just read through it. Test yourself against the test that John provides. Are you walking in fellowship with Christ? Chapters 1 and 2 deal with fellowship. Are you born into the family of Christ? Chapters 3 through 5 deal with sonship, being born again. This is how we know the Spirit dwells in us. If God is in us, that same love will be in us. Not ethereally, but tangibly. Love is an action. It's something that we demonstrate. We're going to close in a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed for this week and pick up in chapter 5 next week.